The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. I'm really surprised that you guys showed up. So, all right, uh, it's your turn today. Ladies. Don't be doing none of this elbow stuff during the message, okay? Just listen. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, <clears throat> don't be poking your husband during it. Jeff was smart. He made his wife stay away today so she wouldn't be bothering him while he was... Uh... All right, let's get started. Good morning, Bereans. The basic building block of society, the family, is under attack today in our culture. I think you're well aware of that. Immorality threatens the family, thus threatening society. They're trying to dissolve the genders. They want to just totally do away with male and female, and we just all become a unigender, I guess, or something. I don't know what the plan is here, but, uh, you know, we have a Supreme Court justice who is appointed for life, the highest court on the land, Jackson, and during the... Excuse me, Senate Judiciary Committee to nominate her. Blackburn asked her this. She says, In the United States versus Virginia, the majority justice Ginsburg stated, Supposed inherent differences are no longer accepted as grounds for race or national origin classifications. Physical differences between men and women, however, are enduring. This is Ginsburg who said this, okay? The two sexes are not fungible. Anybody familiar with that word, fungible? (laughs) It means exchangeable, replaceable. In other words, you can't, a woman can't be a man, man can't be, you get that? Okay, this is Ginsburg, all right? Uh, A community made up exclusively of one. Sex is different from a community composed of both. And then she asked her, she said, do you agree with Justice Ginsburg that there are physical differences between men and women that are enduring? And, and then Blackbird goes on and says, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Now again, this is a Supreme Court justice. This is someone who sits on the highest court land making rulings. Can you tell us what a woman is? She says, can I provide a definition? Uh, and Blackburn goes, uh, yeah. She says, no, I can't. Blackburn goes, you can't? And she says, not in this context. I'm not a biologist. So now you have to be a biologist so you know what's a man. How is she going to make rulings in this court when she doesn't even know what a woman is? Okay? I think we all are aware the left is pushing degenerate behavior down our throat in all forms. And the bottom line is, I really think the bottom line of all this is they want to normalize pedophilia. And the reason they want to normalize this is because they're pedophiles. Government, Hollyweird, all those things, you know, they're filled with pedophiles and they want to make it normal. And I believe that the way we combat this degeneracy is to live out our God-given roles. To be the people that God has called us to be to be a demonstration to the world of what a Christian's supposed to be like. The family's the backbone of the church. And if we don't have strong families, 
We're not going to have strong churches. The family is under attack in our society, and when we forsake these roles, we destroy the family ourselves, and we don't need the left to help us to do that. So in order to preserve the family, we need to be obeying the God-given principles for the family. Now, our text in Ephesians 5, 22-33 gives us the roles of husband and wife. These are areas where the reality of our faith is supposed to be lived out. These roles give us opportunities to show the difference Christianity has made in our lives. It's difficult to see how Christianity can have any positive effect on society if it can't transform our homes. It's got to start with the home. Now, as we look at these areas, you need to ask yourself some important questions. You need to ask yourself, does my relationship with Christ make a difference in my God-given role? Am I a better wife because I'm a Christian? Am I a better husband because I'm a Christian? Now, in our last study, we looked at Paul's command to the wife, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Don't worry, ladies, I'm not going to pick on you again this week. But let me ask you a question. Do you see any conditions in this command to the wives? It, <laughs> you do? <laughs> it doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands as long as you think he's doing what he should do. As long as he's loving you. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at the command of the husbands to love their wives, and we'll see that there isn't any conditions there either. It doesn't say, husbands, love your wife as long as she's submitting, as long as she's doing everything you want her to do. Wives are commanded to submit. Husbands are commanded to love regardless of what the spouse does. Your submitting, your loving are to be unto the Lord. So wives are to submit. Husbands are to love regardless of what the other party does. Now, I'm sure you're aware that marriage is much easier when both parties work together at this and both live out their roles. But no matter what the response of your spouse is, no matter what your response does, you're responsible for your part. Let me ask you something. Christian women, do you have the power to submit to an unloving husband? You do. If you're walking with Christ and Christian men, do you have the power to love an unsubmissive wife? Yes, we do. But we have to remember that submissiveness and love is a result of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. 5.18, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The word filled with plerao means controlled. The Spirit is to control us. The only way he does this is if we are saturated with the Word of God. Now, notice what Paul says about the power available to us through the Spirit in Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. What does Paul mean by the fact that he can do all things through Christ? He means that because he is in communion with Christ, he means because he is walking with Christ, because he is being controlled by the Spirit, he has the power of Christ available to him to meet every need. Paul's not saying here, I can do all things because I'm a Christian. He's saying he can do all things because he's living in dependence on Christ. He's living under the control of the Spirit. He's abiding in Christ. Paul talked a lot about the power of Christ. Walking in fellowship with Christ gives us power to deal with every circumstance we face. 
You ever seen a Christian in a very difficult situation and just seem to be handling it great and you wonder, how in the world are they doing that? How do, they, how do they respond like that in the midst of that situation? Well, they can do that because the power of Christ is available to those who abide in Him. And that's what Paul means when he says, I can do all things. If you look at the context, he says, I know how to be wealthy. I know how to be in poverty. I can do all things. Any circumstance I'm in, I can deal with because of Christ. He can handle it. Now listen, I think we could say this, that if you can't deal with your circumstances... You must not be depending on Christ. You must not be controlled by the Spirit. Because the secret of power in the Christian life is walking with Christ. It's being controlled by the Spirit. Paul is saying, I can go through anything that life throws at me through the strength that I have in Christ. And that strength comes from a walk of obedience, a walk of dependence. I believe that the all things here would include Submitting to an unloving husband would be loving an unsubmissive wife. We have the power. Christianity is supernatural. But too often we make it so natural and we live like we have no power at all. Wives, we looked at your role in the family last time. This morning it's the husband's turn. All right. In 525, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. <clears throat> following Paul's instruction to the wives in 22 through 24, which state that the husband is the head of the wife, I think you'd almost kind of expect him to say next, husbands, exercise your leadership over your wives diligently, just as Christ is the head of the church. I mean, if the wives are commanded to submit, then the husband surely should be commanded to instruct and to lead. Well, but that's not what he says. Instead of commanding husbands to lead their wives, Paul instructs them to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives. See, for Paul, which obviously is the Lord's point of view here, because he's writing this under inspiration, loving takes priority over leading, which means it should for us also. Now, if you ask many Christian husbands to summarize their biblical duty in one word, I think the answer you'd probably get most likely would be leadership. I'm called as a husband to lead. But Yahweh answers the question with a different word. He says love. And Paul does not hear anywhere else exhort husbands to rule over their wives. He doesn't do it. Now there's no doubt that Yahweh's design for the men, if you're a husband, includes the aspect of leadership. But it's a leadership that flows from love and always is tempered by tender, caring affection. The husband's proper role as a loving, nurturing head is best epitomized by Christ, who took the servant's role and washed his disciples' feet. We see this in John 13, 14, and 15. The Lord says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. That was a slave's role that he did to wash the feet. And the Lord himself, who is the God of all creation, <clears throat> humbles himself and washes the feet of those very people he created. He's the Lord and he humbles himself. And so should we as husbands. Now, the amount of space given to the subject of the analogy of Christ's love 
in this text, I think, signifies the importance of the husband's responsibility to love their wives. Wives, let's make sure we understand that this verse is not addressed to you. It says husbands, okay? Just like the other verse wasn't addressed to us, it was addressed to wives. This is addressed to husbands, not addressed to you. It doesn't say wives, make sure your husband loves you like you think he should. Nag him about it every day, you know, give him grief if he doesn't do it. This command is to the husbands. So men, this is our responsibility regarding the marriage. Women, you have one responsibility the Lord gives in this text, submit. Hupotasso, line up under the authority. Men, it's love. Husbands, love your wives. Now this is a Greek word here for love is agapao. There's really no word in our modern language which needs more interpreting than the word love. Because it's used for everything today. You know, it's grossly misused. You, you could use love to describe sleazy sexual passion, to patriotic emotion, to hot dogs, okay? But here it's defined for us in a very illuminating phrase, which is set in opposition to it. Watch what he says, husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah, just think about that for a second, okay? Agapaho here is in the present tense. Imperative. The present tense imperative indicates continuous action. It could be translated this way. Husbands, keep on loving your wives. So to apply Paul's command, we need to be clear about what he means by love. He isn't referring to an overpowering feeling that swept over you when you first met her, when you first saw her. The verb itself seems best understood in the New Testament to express a willing love. Not the love of passion, not the love of emotion, but the love of choice. A covenant kind of love. Love is portrayed as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love. Now, according to the Bible, love is something you do. All right? We could say that how much you love is determined by how much you do. Therefore, you can only say, I love you, by your actions. In 1 John 3.18, John writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Don't just talk about your love, he said, but do it in deed and in truth. Now, contrary to this, our society teaches love as a feeling. It's some mystical sensation that sweeps over you one day and may disappear the next. But as long as we feel a certain way, okay, you think you're in love. And when that feeling goes away, then, well, you're not in love anymore. Well, the Bible teaches us the opposite. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. It is something that you do. Husbands, love your wives. The article here, ha, your before wives functions as a possessive pronoun indicating that husbands are to love their own wives, not other women. This is, reinforces monogamy. Now in Matthew 19, when Yeshua's disciples heard Him teaching about the permanence of marriage and the sinfulness of divorce, they responded this way. They said, the disciples said to Him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So Paul here is really upping the ante. Not only must a man live with his wife for the rest of his life, he's to sacrificially love his wife 
for the rest of his life. Now this exhortation to husbands to love their wives, this is unique. It's not found in the Tanakh. It's not found in rabbinic literature. It's not found in the household codes of the Greco-Roman era. All right? There's no doubt that what Yahweh is saying to husbands probably came as a surprise to most men in that culture. We live in a totally different cultural situation today, so it's hard for us to understand how different the status was. We heard Stanley talking about other countries and how the status of the women is. Well, that's, that's kind of how it was back in Bible days, all right? Uh, William Barclay, who is a great historian, he's a lousy theologian, he's a neoliberal, neo-orthodox, okay, but he is a good historian, and he gives us some insight on the matter. Barclay says this, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no right whatever in the initiation of divorce. And the only grounds on which a divorce might be awarded her were if her husband developed leprosy, became an apostate, or ravished a virgin. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the woman's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded complete servitude and chastity, but her husband can go out as much as he chose and could enter in as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked without incurring any stigma. Under both Jewish and Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband, all the duties to the wife. This is the plight of women in the society to which the Lord is writing this. All right, And as if Barclay states, all the privileges belong to the husband, all the duties to the wife, then the husbands were not used to hearing about duties in marriage. And so Paul said, husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. And they're like, wait a minute, we don't have to do anything, okay? And that's why this instruction would have come as such a surprise to the husbands. Furthermore, many of these men were married to women who they didn't choose, since marriage were often arranged by the parents. So they're like, okay, here you go. Now the Greek writer Demosthenes describes the community mentality this way. He says, We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. <coughs> okay, so that's... Uh, you see, this is radical. This is what Christianity did to the world. It turned things upside down, Okay. This is what Paul, this is what the world, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring these words, and it's totally radical. It's revolutionary. It was never heard of before. So Paul's command is shocking, but it's crystal clear. The husbands are to love their wives. They're to treat them with gentleness, not harshness. And these commands were given for a very good reason. Because marriage was and is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That's what Ephesians 5 makes clear, and that's what's so important here. You know, when they look at marriage, they're supposed to see a picture of this relationship. Now, many American Christian husbands 
think their main responsibility is to provide an increasing, comfortable lifestyle for their wives and children. And the Bible does state that it is a man's job to provide financially for his family. Again, this is something else being overturned in our society today. But Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, you know, we talked several weeks ago about a pastor that has denied the faith, and he says he's an atheist. This is not about these people's confession. This is about their life. He said they're, they're not providing, so they're denying the faith that they say they believe. And Paul says they're worse than unbelievers. These are strong words. So Paul's saying we've got to provide for our family with basic needs. He's not talking about all the stuff that the world says we need today to be happy. You know, most husbands feel that if they're providing for their wife, then they're loving her. But loving her goes way beyond simply providing for her financially. <clears throat> and in this passage, Paul puts his finger on the primary role of the husband in the marriage. Every man is ultimately responsible for what his marriage becomes. This responsibility revolves around his primary role to give his wife security in his love. I think most people feel that their marital problems are due to some exceptional misfortune. That's wrong. Marriage problems are a result of our sin, our failure to live out the commands that God has given us. How are we to love our wives? Well, the model and the ground of the husband's love for his wife is Christ's love for his church. He says, husbands, love your wives. And that's, let's face it, guys, that he could have stopped there. That's tough enough. That's putting enough on someone, right? But he says, as, here's how you do it, as, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. I really have to think this is one of the more difficult commands in Scripture. Because, I mean, when you really think of what he's saying, we're commanded to love as Christ did. That is talking about the atonement. We're talking about a ransom payment. We're talking about the purchase price, indeed the greatest price ever paid in love to purchase a bride. <coughs> Excuse me. The word gave here is from the Greek word paradidomai. And it means to hand over, to give over to judgment. The verb together with the reflexive pronoun himself stresses the fact that Christ took the initiative in handing himself over to death. He went to the cross as a willing victim. This is what Yeshua said. <coughs> In John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So giving his life was a voluntary act of love for the church. The love of Christ was extended to us before we requested it, or we changed our actions. Paul put it this way in Romans 5, 8. He says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Husbands, please notice here that Christ died for us while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He died for those who crucified him. He died for those who hated him, for those who stood there and cried out for his crucifixion. How many of us love a person when they don't love us back? 
How many of us love a person when they rebuke us, disdain us, detest us? And yet we should love our wives independently of whether they deserve it or not. Wives should not have to earn their husband's love because we're commanded to give it. Now notice again the substitute character of Christ's love. He says Christ died for us. His love for us provided that sacrifice for our welfare. For God to forgive and accept us as righteous when we had broken His law required that eternal justice had to be satisfied. He couldn't ignore our sin. He couldn't let it slide. He couldn't even accept partial satisfaction of justice. The full measure of eternal satisfaction had to be met or none of us could ever be accepted by God. The righteousness of God stood in the balance. So God took the most severe measure possible. He took His sinless Son and He accepted our sins as though they were His own. And with that acceptance, He bore God's wrath in full measure on the cross. No greater display of love could ever be shown. And, he, and he, Paul is saying, husbands, you love your wives as Christ. He sacrificed, he died, that's how much he loved her. No greater price could ever be paid. And that's how husbands are to love their wives. The kind of love which God requires of husbands involves sacrifice. Honey, could you go to the store or something for a little bit? We cannot love our wives as Christ loved the church without sacrifice. Yeshua took our blame and He bore our punishment. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21 He says, For our sake He made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. At a personal cost that we can never fully fathom, He laid aside His righteous God. He took on human flesh and He became obedient to the death on a cross where He was actually made sin for us. So husbands, do you give yourself for your wife? That's what husbands are called to do. He's to give himself. Men should protect their wives by taking their shame, by sharing their pain. Yeshua also loved the church by promising to never leave her. In Hebrews 13.5, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I think a wife craves that security of knowing that her husband is committed to her until death do us part. And when we fail to impart that sense of security, it's a breeding ground for all kinds of fears and indignations. So husbands are told, To love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a sacrificial love. And I think when a husband loves like this, he's going to have a wife who desires to submit to him. The role of the husband is to love his wife to such a degree that she feels secure in that love. Yeshua loved us with a sacrificial love. He loved us absolutely. He loved us without limitation, without condition, without reserve. Love gives of his interest, its time, its pleasure, its ambition, and its friends. Often husbands give everything but themselves. We can be so self-centered and selfish that we expect our wives to pay attention to us all the time. What do we give them in return? 
Well, when we take each other for granted, then love will begin to wither. And the command to love your wife implies that the husband is to be committed to total unselfishness in the relationship. He is told that in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. So he is to model his action of love after Christ, who unselfishly gave himself for his bride. Now, I think the practical edge of such love means that the husband is on the lookout for how he can meet the needs of his wife. He seeks to nurture her, to care for her, help her enjoy marriage to the fullest. He labors to help develop her in spiritual and emotional maturity. And his joy and delight is in seeing the progress and the growth in his wife. Loving your wife demands sacrificial actions and giving to her. Yeshua said, or Yeshua, it says, gave himself for the church. It was a sacrifice of his life. It was a willingness to suffer so that his bride, the church, might be radiant with glory. Don't think that the sacrifice of Yeshua was done with some grim resignation or merely out of duty. It was the unselfish heart of a love that was willing to pay the ultimate price for the bride's benefit. You know, I think there's... Well, there's some men who would stand between their wives and an intruder to offer protection. But those same men, those chivalrous with protection, would not think of adjusting their schedule or their career or outside interests for their wives. Sacrifice may come in many areas, and I think protection could be one of them. That's included. But it also involves the sacrifice of our energy, our goal, our time, our interest, and the interest of our wife's needs. There's two sides to love. You got giving and you got receiving. Giving love is the action side, and receiving love is the feeling side. God made us rational and emotional creatures. He gave us the capacity to feel love, and equally important, the ability to choose to demonstrate it. Now, the question we need to answer is how can I show my wife that I love her? Not talk about it, but how can I show it? Or put another way, how can I love in action so that my wife senses, feels my love. Well, Dr. Gary Chapman, who's a leading family and marriage therapist, has described in his book, The Five Languages of Love, five unique love languages that men and women utilize in relating to one another. Now, love language is the ability to express love and concern for another person in the primary emotional language of that person. Have you ever been around people who are speaking a foreign language and you didn't understand what they're saying? Stan? <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, while well, I was at a wedding and the, the groom and his mom were talking and they're from another country and I was like, I didn't, I didn't understand. I knew they were talking to each other, but I didn't get anything you know, out of what they were saying. I mean, I know they're communicating, but I had no clue what they were saying. If you don't know the language they're speaking, the words are totally meaningless to you. Well, that same thing happens with the love languages, okay? If you're speaking a language that you think is your love language, but it's not your wife's, she's like, I don't hear what you're saying. I don't understand it. It comes across as an unknown tongue, so to speak. So we, we're trying to say, I love you, but they don't understand our language. So they have no clue of what's really being said. And as a result, our efforts to demonstrate love are just frustrated. 
Well, to avoid that frustration, we need to learn the primary language of our spouse. What is their love language? Your primary love language is evident in two ways. You speak it more other more often than any other language, because it's your love language, so you're going to speak that way. You also feel most loved when it is spoken to you. Now, there's five ways of expressing love and action to our mate that they actually feel loved. Affection is great need by both men and women. Affection is one of the greatest needs that a person is born with and one that I think will never outgrow. Affection symbolizes security and comfort and approval. And as we go over these five love languages, see if you can determine which one of them is your predominant language. What do you want to hear spoken more than anything else, okay? So in Chapman's book, he talks about these five languages. The first one is words of affirmation, all right? This is one way we express love, by building up others through verbal encouragement. Taking the time to verbally pat somebody on the back is a way of saying, I love you. You're telling your Giving them, you know, oh, that was so great what you did. I really appreciate you that you did this. You're building them up. I love the way you did this. You did such a good job. You know, you're building them up with your words, all right? That's, that's a love language that some people speak. Two is quality time. Now, quality time means giving somebody your full attention. Boy, this is something in our day and age needs to be paid attention to. So you can be sitting around with a bunch of people, and they're all on their phones. And they're not even texting one another. You know, they're in a different, separate world. And it's frustrating to me when I'm out with other people and they're paying attention. I want to just leave. I'm like, bye-bye. There's no point in us being together because there's no interaction. Help, help, have, if that phone is that important to you, then I don't want to be part of this, okay? Because that just, it's saying to the other people, I don't care about you. I, I've got more important stuff to do here on whatever that's going on on this phone. Quality time is sitting on the couch together, not sitting on the couch together, watching television, okay? That's not quality time. It means looking at each other while you're talking. It requires that you invest yourself in the other person by listening carefully to what they're saying. It involves two people who are actively participating in the conversation, going beyond the fact level of communication. And some ways of doing this are, you know, just do an activity that you enjoy together, Riding bikes, walking through the neighborhood, doing whatever, or some kind of hobby, some kind of sport, something that you both enjoy that you're communicating while you're doing it. However it's translated, it means having quality time to interact together. Uh, somebody, I can't remember, uh, Growing Kids God's Way, he suggested couch time, what he called it, and he said when the husband gets home from work, put the kids in the room, set them apart, do something, get kids to stay busy for a couple, 30 minutes, and the husband and wife would sit down on the couch, and he would share his day, and she would share her day. They're really actively sharing with one another what's going on in their lives. Because togetherness is not a matter of proximity. It has to do with focused attention. Okay? So if you want to really be rude, in my eyes, when you're talking to somebody, pull your phone out and start staring at it. Okay? All right, gift giving. Now, <laughs> let me clarify this. This is impromptu gift giving, not obligatory holiday giving. Okay, you know, you got those obligatory gifts you got to give to people you don't like at holidays, you know. And I've always, my, 
we had problems with this earlier in our marriage, but because I'm a, I'm not buying you anything on Valentine's Day. Who made that holiday up? Who says I got to do that? I'm just such a rebel that I'm going to fight it tooth and nail, okay? And I'm not going to do it. I'll do it later, but then I forget, I guess. So, <laughs> you later never comes. <laughs> but I just, you know, I don't like being forced to do things by Hallmark, okay? <laughs> I mean, who's making all the money on this holiday, okay? Come with this holiday of love, and we'll make a bunch of money. Restaurants are loving it, all right? But it's the impromptu gift-giving that sends a message. Hey, there's nothing special going on, but I got this flower. I got this. I was thinking about you. You know, that's what it tells you. And it's providing something you can hold in your hand that reminds you this person was thinking about you. They were remembering you. It may be a gift of something you purchased. It may be just something that you made. But it's saying, I'm thinking about you. Number four, physical displays of affection. Now, numerous research projects in the area of child development have made the conclusion that babies who are held, hugged, and kissed develop a healthier emotional life than those who are left for long periods without physical contact. I've read that some kids actually died because they had no fit in an orphanage or they just had no contact. And some people find the predominant way that they sense affection is by touch. It may be a hug. It may be holding a hand. It may be just an arm around the shoulder, that contact. And for married people, this would include sex. But sex is only one dialect in this love language of physical touch. There's much more to it than that. It's just connecting with other people. Now, some people, I have one granddaughter, doesn't like to be touched at all. So that's definitely not her love language, okay? You've got to just stay at a distance. She can't stand to be touched. I don't know what that's about. Not, not, not Zoe, no. Zoe's a hugger. <laughs> and then there's acts of service. This is my wife's love language, Okay. <laughs> We communicate love by serving others, doing things for them that will help them out, that we know they will appreciate. And whenever you do something for another person, beyond the normal course of events, you're saying, I love you. It's action. Now, this is my wife's love language because she speaks it. And because this is her language that she speaks, this is how she wants to be loved. Now, out of all those love languages, one of them is your primary language. So you guys figure it out for yourself. One of these is your primary. One of these modes of expression means more to you than the other four. You want, to, you want this one, okay? And another one maybe means the least to you. Your primary love language is the one you most enjoy hearing and the one you tend to speak to other people. So learning how to love your wife means learning and choosing to speak her language. And let me tell you one way you can help figure this out. Your spouse's criticism about your behavior will provide you with the clearest clue to their primary language. Okay? Because people tend to criticize their spouses most loudly in the area where they themselves have the deepest need. All right? So they're telling you when they're complaining, this is my language. All right? And their criticism is an ineffective way of pleading for love. So men, as you love your wives, you'll show forth the love of Christ for his church in a way that 
No sermon can equal. No other picture can compare. Your love for her will demonstrate the great and profound mysteries of the union of Christ with His people. As you tenderly nourish and sustain her, showering upon her the grace and love which God has showered upon you, and as you give yourself to her, allowing your hopes, your desires, your life to merge with hers, as you're truly united with her as you are with Christ, then you'll find the strength to bear with her even when she's unreasonable. Even when your ability to be patient seems stretched beyond what you think you can do. Even when she's a grouch, you can still love her the way God's called you to. (laughs) No. It's this love which Yahweh calls us to. It's this love which we are to bestow on our wives. And listen, guys, this is really important. We talked about the same thing with the wives. It's not because she deserves it. It's because Christ deserves it. And if you ever get to the point where you give your spouse what she deserves, then you've turned that person into an idol. And you're not expecting, you're expecting them to be perfect. And marriage is not about getting what you deserve because that's law. Marriage is about giving something that's undeserved. Marriage is about grace. It's about portraying the love of Yahweh for His people. And don't forget the reason you love your wife is not because she's such a lovable person. It's because Yahweh has loved you and forgiven you. He has removed your sin, united you to His Son. And it's He who has at work in you both to will and to do God's pleasure. And it's the Holy Spirit who sustains you and sanctifies you daily by the power of Christ's atoning blood shed on the cross. Let me give you three actions that I think we should make a daily priority in our relationship with our wife that just demonstrate the love to them once we learn their language. I think if you do these three things, she'll feel loved. Number one, consideration. Peter put it this way. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, he's not really messing with us. He really wants us to do that. You might say, well, that's impossible. Even by the grace of God, that's... No, we can, all right. In an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guys, your prayers aren't getting answered. Uh, Maybe you better check some things out here, okay? But he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter's talking here about being considerate. This is the opposite of the caveman mentality that some today would advocate It's incompatible with the kind of independent, proud, self-absorbed machoism that many think epitomizes true maleness. It calls for understanding. It calls for sensitivity and meeting your wife's needs. It involves a sincere effort to understand her feelings, her fears, her anxieties, her concerns. In short, we just have to be considerate. Often it boils down to listening. You have to understand your wife's heart. How can you express a sacrificial love that meets her needs when you have no earthly idea what those needs are? Consideration. Chivalry. People often say chivalry is dead. Well, Peter says, show honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel. 
In what sense are women weaker? Not always, yeah. Listen, I believe this has reference primarily to the physical realm. Women are, as a class, physically weaker than men. And if you notice in our society, these trans women, which means a man, that's what trans woman means, a man, they're going into women's sports and they're dominating. How many women, how many trans men, which is a woman, going into men's sports, do you hear of any? Why not? Because they get slaughtered. And you're putting men in, you know, in a boxing ring with a woman and they're just beating them to death. And in women trains all her life for a competition, and some guy comes along and says, hey, by the way, I'm a woman. And he dominates the competition. And our society goes, oh, isn't it so wonderful? I mean, the woman of the year is a man. This, this should make women so angry. You know, they're just, they're, their sports, their lives are being taken over by guys who want to be women. It's ridiculous. Now, I know it's true that there are some women who are stronger than their husbands, maybe. Okay? That's not the norm thing, but it, it happens. Even in those cases, the principle still applies. You're to treat your wife with a gentle chivalry. Especially you are to do that, because she'll whip your butt if you don't, okay? You can, do a th- you can do this in a thousand ways, from opening the car door, moving furniture forward, doing the heavy work around the house. You know, I, I hear this, and... You got to be careful today because you open the door for women, they get mad. Some women get mad. I can open my own door. You want to just slam it on them, you know, like, okay, go right ahead. But I mean, really, today, society is so upturned that women get mad that men do things for them. I can do that myself. Okay, go right ahead. But we are to serve men, we're to serve our wives with our strength. We treat them as a weaker vessel, showing them a particular deference in matters of their physical weakness. That places them at a disadvantage. In 1 Peter 3 7, he actually suggests that God designed women to be under the protection of a man and benefiting from his strength. This is how God designed it. And serving our wives by leading them and lending our strength to them is one of the main ways we show them a Christ like sacrificial love. And then finally, communion. Peter says we're to regard our wives as heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, men and women may be unequal physically, but they are equal spiritually. In other words, treat your wife as a spiritual equal. While you're legitimately concerned with the task of spiritual leadership in your home, don't forget the responsibility of communion before God with your wife as a joint heir. In this grace, your role as her leader doesn't mean you are her superior. Both of you are utterly dependent upon divine grace. You're heirs together of grace. In the Song of Solomon, the wife says this of her husband. His mouth is moist, is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. I love that expression. She rejoices in her love for her husband, but it is not just his romantic devotion that thrills her. It's not his leadership that causes her to sing. 
What is it? She's glad that he is her friend. That's the kind of relationship husband and wife should cultivate. It's a deep sense of intimate, equal sharing of spiritual things. It's a communion together like no other relationship on earth. Like I said, said it many times lately, in the Garden of Eden, God said it's not good for man to be alone. He's there with God. What else do you need? He's there with the divine counsel. What else do you need? But he says, it's not good to be alone. You need a wife. That shows us the importance of this communion that we have with another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The spirit-filled husband loves his wife not for what she can do for him, but because of what he can do for her. Because that's how Christ's love works. He loves us not because there's something in us that attracts him. Not because he gains any benefit from loving us, but simply because he's determined to love us and delights to bestow his favor on us. Husbands, not to love your wives is a sin. So you better be thanking God that salvation is all of grace. For all you lordship people who want to you know, cry out, well, obedience is required, and you better not get married. Okay, seriously, it would make it easier on you to get into heaven through your obedience if you don't get married. Because you're commanded to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not to do that is sin, so you're in big trouble. Because that would be disobedience. And men, please understand this. I am preaching to myself today. Okay? I need to hear this just as much, if not more, than anybody. Okay? When we got married almost 50 years ago, I married her because I thought she was hot, okay? Um, I was just physically attracted to her, you know? And we got along in a lot of areas, so yeah, we got married. Today, I thank God because I'm like, God, I had no idea what I would need in 50 years, but you did. And I just marvel at His grace to me. And here's what I don't understand. There's no one in this world that I love more than my wife. I mean, there's no relationship comparable at all. I know that she's my greatest ally. I know that she's my biggest supporter. I know she always has my back. She is the most awesome helpmeet I could ever imagine. She fleshes out the biblical meaning of helpmeet. And yet, I am more impatient with her than probably anybody. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. And I cry out to God day after day, Lord, help me to be the man you called me to be. Why? Why would that be? Why would the person that I admire most in this world why would I be more impatient with them than anybody? It just doesn't make sense. And then I think maybe it's because it's harder to live the Christian life at home than anywhere. Because everywhere else, you know, people don't know you that well, so you try to be on your best behavior, right? At home, you're just like, oh, I'm tired of working so hard. I'll just be myself. Be my normal jerk self, okay? At home. Maybe it's because familiarity breeds contempt, or at least disrespect. And we often just take each other for granted. 
This is wrong. And by the grace of God, it needs to be corrected. Honey, I'm sorry, because I don't feel like I'm the man God's called me to be. I so want to be, and I cry out to God every day, and yet I continually fail and reminded of what a mess I am. There's a country song, and every time it comes on, I just go to tears in the car. That's really the only time I listen to music. But it, the song, the woman's singing, she says, I wish you were a better man. I'm like, yeah, I wish I was too. But people, what we have to understand, the Christian home is the outpost of Christianity. God placed us in this environment to represent him here on the earth. We are image bearers of God. And so... When people look at us, this is Ephesians 5, Paul Paul says this relationship between a husband and wife is like Christ and the church. That's the purpose of this relationship. And when people look at a married couple, they should see Christ and the church. And if somebody asks me, how much does Christ love the church? I should be able to point to Jeremy. I picked on your wife last week. And I should be able to say, look at how Jeremy treats Caitlin, Okay. That's how much Christ loves the church. Believers, that's a heavy calling. But that's what we're called to, and we have the power to do it. We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's that's the atonement he's talking about. That's a sacrificial death on a cross, a torturous death for the one loved. That's how we're to love our wives. That's total sacrifice. Believers, meditate on the atonement. Husbands, meditate on the atonement. And look at that little word as there. That's how you love her. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. Lord, sometimes it just seems overwhelming, the calling that's on our lives. But I know that you've provided the power to live it out, to flesh it out. We just need to get outside ourselves. We need to be willing to make sacrifices. We need to be willing to follow you and walk in communion with you. That needs to be the priority of our lives. We need to saturate ourselves with the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Help us, Lord, as men and women, to carry out the biblical roles you've called us to so society can see what a family is called to be. Society can see who you are. They can see your love for the church through the husbands. They can see your, the church's submission to you through the wives. May we be the picture to the world you've called us to be, Father. Amen. Okay, men, I got bad news for you. Next week's part two. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I couldn't get it all in this week, so we're going to have to do part two next week. All right, questions, comments?
<laughs> I know. <laughs> I know that, believe me. Look at you. Yeah. You're pretty hot, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, this is from Norm. Norm says, the very meaning of husband is to nurture, cultivate, grow, care for, prune, protect, admire, and give one's full attention to. This is what Adam was commanded to do with, with the garden. Then he was introduced to his wife as the living image of this responsibility. Amen. It's a, it's a pretty high calling. Um, somebody, I'm not even sure who this is from, says, Powerful message. Appreciate the transparency. You're welcome. Thank you for watching. You know what, to me, is, is sad? If I do a message like Genesis 6, gods came down and had sex with women, the numbers blow up. You do a, you do a message on the family or the home, and who, nobody wants to watch that. You know, that's just how we are. I mean, we talk about the second coming. Talk about it. You know, these messages are... People don't want to listen to these, and I, I get that, I guess. It's, you know. Yeah, don't be practical. Okay, anybody? It's awful quiet in here, all right? <laughs> Gary? Not coming next week. Okay. <laughs> well, if you notice, the attendance is really down today, okay? Uh, I, I warned you ahead of time, and I shouldn't have done it. Anthony? You're welcome, brother. Like I said, this is, um, you know, you guys get it on Sunday morning, but I get it all week preparing for this, okay? And uh, now i got to go through another week of this. <laughs> I think my wife enjoys these weeks, so. I feel like I've been beat up all week in one hour. <laughs> Okay. It's not just saying that you know you really do gotta pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. That's what he wants. <laughs> Shelley said that's how so that is how arranged marriages could be so successful. Yeah, they could be successful if you're living out the precepts of the word of God, you know. I mean Junior writes, today we've been reminded why we've submitted to your leadership for almost a decade. Your your humility has been a magnet for us. Keep being real. Thanks, Junior. Thank you. Gary and Chris in Pennsylvania. Bless you, Dave. You're not alone. I feel the same about what you said today to your wife. You are brutally honest about what you struggle with. That is what changes people. You openly admit that, and that is so wonderful that you can stand there in a pulpit and honestly say, well, it's either that or lie, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't think and that's I a, I don't think that's a good, <laughs> besides my wife's sitting there, so I can't really lie, because uh, uh, Dana writes, thank you, David. It shows me how much I need Yahweh, grace and strength. Amen. That is so true. We just, you know, we need constant reminders. And I pray, Lord, put a watch on my mouth, you know, 
put a watch on my mouth because we can be so it can be so destructive, you know. The Proverbs has a lot to say about that, about the tongue and the destruction that you know can be brought. All right, oh, I think we're done. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Best message ever. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. This message today meant more to me as a woman than last week's. <laughs> I think deep down your message today applies to all of us. How we treat our family, those who we are familiar with. Thank you so much. You're right. And it's just, it, it, again, it, it just baffles me why the people we love the most, why are we so familiar to treat them with such disrespect? Stan? We would actually go out on weekly to celebrate our marriage, you know, maybe a restaurant, something. And really the 20th is still special. That's the day we were married. It doesn't matter what. And that's important, you know, to, to work things into that marriage that make it special. That, you know, again, that's, that's the idea of companions, spending time together. You know, building it. Marriages don't, it, this is not, so many people are so confused. When I do marriage counseling, I try to warn people, okay, this is not an easy situation, okay? This is like a serious battle, okay? Because I, sometimes I can't stand myself, okay? So how do I expect somebody else to stand me when I can't even stand to be alone? And I can't get away from myself. That's the biggest problem I have, okay? I can't just leave the room, leave me behind. I'd love to do that sometimes, but... Uh, you know, so yeah, it's it's a difficult situation, but by the grace of God. It, and then there's, I know other people, though, that they're both such compliant, easygoing people that, you know, they've never had a fight in their life. I look at them, I'm like, what's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> Did you have a question? Later. Okay. <laughs> All right, let me check one more time here. All right, we're done. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate you all being with us.